chapter 7. Our doctrine today has been a very simple but glorious one, and it's stated very clearly here in our verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 6. Um, I won't go back through the context again, suffice it to say, the verse really does mean what it appears to mean at first blush. Second uh, Corinthians 7, verse 6, but God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And we've been focusing on that dependent clause, who comforts the downcast, and that's our truth for today, that our God is a God who comforts His downcast people. Uh, This morning we noted that this word translated comforts has two major aspects to it. Uh, One is the aspect of drawing near, coming alongside someone. God comforts His downcast people by coming alongside us in our afflictions through the person of the Holy Spirit. And this word also has the idea of exhortation, of verbal encouragements. And so God works through His Word in order to comfort His downcast people. People. He draws near to us by his presence and then he brings to mind his word and it is in this way that he brings comfort to our souls. So with that in mind, I have been drawing our attention to five ways that God comforts his downcast people. We're thinking especially about wives and mothers, but it certainly applies to every one of us. And all five of these ways have to do with bringing to mind something that God has taught us in His Word. Uh, All five of these comforts come as we take what God has spoken to us and we bring it to bear on our lives and our present circumstances. So the first means of receiving God's comforts that we looked at this morning uh, is to remember from whom your afflictions come. When we understand a biblical theology of afflictions, that they are trials appointed for us by the God who loves us, that changes how we see our circumstances. We can have peace and encouragement even in the midst of sorrow and pain when we believe that our Father's hand is behind the trials that come our way. But now I want to move on to the four other methods of receiving God's comforts. So, number two, remember the goal of your afflictions. Remember the goal of your afflictions. So, what is the goal? Why does God bring trials and hardship into our lives? Thankfully, God has not kept silent on this. We're not told the specific purpose of each specific trial, but we do know the goal of our trials in general. Uh, 1 Peter 1, beginning of verse 6, says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Peter here gives us two great reasons 
why God brings hardship, trials, difficulties into our lives. First, Peter says God does this to test the genuineness of our faith. And it isn't that God doesn't know whether our faith is real. But the issue here is that we can deceive ourselves. It's so easy to profess Christ as our Lord, but it's in the fires of real life that we learn whether he actually is a Lord to whom we trust and to whom we will submit. It's in the fire we see whose will really rules us. Will we say his will be done even when his will is strange to us? Or even if it means sacrifice and loss on our part? Even if his will goes against all of our instincts in this circumstance. Will we fail to trust him? Trusting ourselves instead. Doing what we think is best regardless of what Christ has taught us. Trials have a way of revealing the truth about our hearts. And this is a great gift from God. Because there is nothing that Satan likes better than to make people think they are right with God when in fact they are not. Satan wants to keep people blind to their lost condition as long as he can. And he would much rather have somebody in church every Sunday thinking they're a Christian when they're not than for them even to be a pagan person. Trials are a gift from God that we might know the truth about ourselves, whether or not our faith is genuine. But then second, Peter says that God gives us trials so that on the day that Jesus returns, we will be able to stand before him a holy people and a testament to his grace, bringing praise to him forever. So trials are a means of grace that Christ himself uses to make us holy So that on the last day we will be perfect and ready to be with our Savior forever. So how does that work? How do the various trials that Christ brings into our lives make us holy? Well, this morning I quoted from James 1. I want to quote it again. Listen to this. Listen carefully. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So when we first come to Christ, our life is full of starts and stops. Uh, We can be an inconsistent, volatile people. We have great faith in God one moment, and the next moment we don't. We, we stand strong against this temptation over here, but let this temptation come and we just fall flat on our faces. One kind of pressure doesn't cause us to doubt God at all. Another causes us all sorts of anxiety and disbelief. What the early young baby Christian needs is steadfastness. A faith that perseveres, a faith that is consistent and holds fast in the midst of a variety of circumstances. The mature Christian is the kind that rests in Christ with full peace of mind consistently in all moments, in all circumstances. Whether hungry or full, whether in pain or in good health, 
whether in great gain or great loss, no matter the season, no matter the temptation, no matter the pressures of the day, the mature Christian has learned to trust God even in this and to respond in faith. And that brings glory to God. How do we become such people? How do we learn to stay constant and steadfast in faith? We saw it at the end of this morning's message. It's through practice. God brings us trial after trial after trial, and sometimes we'll fall and sometimes we'll triumph, but the purpose of each one is to reinforce in our hearts and minds that God really does keep his word and that he really is worthy of our trust. The purpose of each trial is that we will learn from it to trust our God all the more with greater constancy. And the ultimate goal of all of this is Christ-likeness. The ultimate goal is that we will one day trust and love the Father the way our Savior trusts and loves His Father. That one day we will bear the image of our Savior. So in the midst of our trials and our heartbreak, we should regularly look forward to that day and we should see the trial that we're enduring right now as part of God's work in preparing us for that day. So William Bridges says this, When a man takes any medicine, causing him to vomit, yet because it is medicine sickness, we do not call it a true sickness, it is as a sickness but not a sickness. Now all the afflictions of the saints are but their medicine, prescribed and given them by the hand of their Father. So Mount Hermon, as we face our trials today, we are to be constantly remembering what this is all about. It's all about making us well. It's making us the kind of people we were meant to be before the fall of man in the garden. You and I have never known what it is to be truly well as human beings. We have never known Christ-likeness. But God is working to get us there. And trials are like the medicines that he prescribes. And sometimes the medicines hurt. And sometimes the medicines cause all kinds of anguish. But they are ultimately for our good. And so we ought to see our afflictions this way. We ought to remember the goal of our afflictions. And take comfort. Okay, number three. Remember what God gives you with your afflictions. Remember what God gives you with your afflictions. And here I am only going to mention a tiny few of the many comforting gifts that God gives us alongside the trials He brings our way. So first, with our afflictions come the promises of God. Our trials come along with God's assured promise that He is working all for our good, that He will never leave us nor forsake us, and that He will sustain us through the whelming flood. I said this morning that the heartbroken mom or wife might feel like David in the Psalms, falling in a bottomless pit with no place to set his feet. But remember, in those Psalms, David always comes back to the truth that he does have a place to set his feet. And it's always the promises of God. That God has assured us that He will be our refuge. He will be our fortress. That we will not be destroyed by our trials. Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. 
These are the promises that God gives us with our trials that we may stand. Second, along with our afflictions comes the gift of humility. Because isn't this what afflictions do to us? They humble us before God. You say, Justin, that doesn't sound like good news, but it is good news. Because God humbles us in order to draw near to us with His blessing. God draws near to the humble, but He opposes the proud. We've said it over and over again. Pride is the great enemy of the Christian life. Pride makes you useless as a servant of Jesus, worse than useless. We, we hurt the cause of Christ when we live in pride. It is through humility that we are made ready instruments in the hands of God, able to do others good. As one old hymn puts it, Old to be emptier, lowlier, mean, unnoticed, and unknown, and to God a vessel holier, filled with Christ and Christ alone. Not of earth to cloud the glory, not of self the light to dim, but telling forth His wondrous story, emptied to be filled with Him. Spurgeon talked about how ungodly children in particular can humble us and draw us to Christ. He said, children are a precious gift from God, but much anxiety comes along with them. And in all cases, the word of God gives us the recipe for the curing of all their ills. Bring him unto me. In other words, Spurgeon is talking about the anxiety that is part of parenting, especially as we seek to point our children to Christ, and even as there may be a fear in the heart of the parent for the soul of their child. And he goes on to say, The Lord sometimes suffers His people to be driven into a corner that they may experimentally know how necessary He is to them. Ungodly children... When they show us our own powerlessness against their depravity in their hearts, drive us to flee to the strong for strength. And this is a great blessing to us. Whatever our morning's need may be, let it be like a strong current that bears us to the ocean of divine love. For Jesus can soon remove our sorrow and he delights to comfort us. And so let us hasten to him while he waits to meet us. So, so Spurgeon says that the depravity of our children and the inability that we have to change their hearts humbles us and causes us to flee to Christ again and again to do what we cannot do. We cast our cares on Christ, including the cares about our children, our worries and our anxieties about our children. And God is eager to hear these concerns and He speaks to our hearts. We wait on Jesus to answer our prayers concerning our children, but we rest in Him as we wait knowing that he will do what is good and what is right. And so humility is a precious gift that God gives us through the afflictions that come, especially in family life. Well, Third, along with our afflictions, comes the gift of self-knowledge. The gift of self-knowledge. Just as gold is put into the fire to remove the dross and to expose what is true, as opposed to what is false in that gold, so also our afflictions help us to know what is true and what is false in us. So William Bridges uses the illustration of a bird's nest that's hidden in a tree. During the flourishing times of the year, the tree is so full of leaves or needles that you can't even see that there's a nest there. But when the winter comes and the leaves or the needles fall, the nest is now revealed. So also, he says, God brings wintry seasons into our lives 
that we might see sins in ourselves that would otherwise remain hidden. We may have thought, I don't struggle with worry or unbelief, but then God brings that trial our way to help us find that maybe we don't trust God as much as we thought we did. Or we may have thought, I don't turn to idols. I don't look to things other than God to find my comfort when I'm discouraged. And so God brings a trial and and suddenly we find ourselves drawn to whatever it might be, drinking, Netflix binging, some broken well that we go to for comfort rather than to the God who is the ultimate satisfier of our souls. Perhaps we've thought in the past, I'm not one to speak harshly. Uh, Losing my temper isn't really something that I struggle with. And then a particular trial comes into your life and God reveals the nest. And you find that there's a little more harshness still in your heart than you had realized. And all of this is God exposing our sins, not just for us to feel bad about ourselves. No, he's exposing our sins that we would turn from them, turn afresh to Jesus Christ, find a a new sense of forgiveness, and then resolve against those sins. To grow in holiness. All of this is to make us more like Jesus, better representatives of him in this world. So a couple years ago on Wednesday nights, uh, we participated, some of us, in a study on marriage called uh, What Did You Expect? And one of the things we felt again and again as we went through that study was the sting of seeing how marriage conflicts actually expose our true allegiances. So as Christians, our ultimate allegiance is to be to the kingdom of Christ. Our ultimate allegiance is to be to Jesus and what he would have me do. But we saw how again and again, in the middle of marital conflict, it's not Christ's concerns that get us all riled up. It's defending ourselves and our own selfish desires. Sometimes God ordains for our hearts to be broken in our marriages so that we can be stripped of living for our own kingdom and we can give ourselves more fully to living for the kingdom of God. It's not about my name. It's not about my family. It's about me being as faithful a spouse and parent as I can be for Christ's name and for the sake of the family of God. And so listen to how Paul Tripp says this. He says, think of the sturdiness of your allegiance to your own kingdom purposes. Let me help you see what I mean. Think about how little of your anger over the last month had anything whatsoever to do with the kingdom of God. Your anger seldom comes out of a zeal for the plans, purposes, values, and the calling of the kingdom of God. When you are hurt, angry, or disappointed with your husband or your wife, it's not because he or she has broken the laws of God's kingdom and that really concerns you. No, you are most often angry because your spouse has broken the laws of your kingdom. Your spouse is in the way of what you want, And that makes you mad and it mobilizes you to do or say something that will rein your spouse back into the service of your wants and your needs and your own feelings. But Tripp says God's grace is intended to explode all of that. His grace purposes to expose and free you from your bondage to you. His grace is meant to bring you to the end of yourself So that you will finally begin to place your identity, your meaning and purpose, and your inner sense of well-being in Him. So God places you in a comprehensive relationship with another flawed person. 
And he places that relationship right in the middle of a very broken world. And to add to this, he designed circumstances for you that you would never have designed for yourself. And all this is meant to bring you to the end of yourself because that's where true righteousness begins. God wants you to give up. God wants you to abandon your own dream. He wants you to face the futility of trying to manipulate the other person into your service because he knows there's no life to be found in those things. End quote. So, so whether it's conflict or affliction or both mixed together, we see God working to expose our sin, to humble us, and ultimately to lead us to the fourth gift that I want to mention. This is a fourth gift that God gives us with our afflictions, and it's the opportunity to repent and become more like Jesus. If our afflictions do not humble us and lead us to repent, then they have not yet served their ultimate purpose. There may be other purposes for your trials, but certainly one of them is to bring you to a place of personal repentance over the sins in your heart exposed by the trial. And remember, repentance is a gift. Repentance is something granted to us by God, and trials are one means that God uses to grant you the gift of repentance. So Robert Murray McShane once preached a sermon from Job called The Right Improvement of Affliction, meaning the best way to use your trials, right? Here's how to make the most of your trials when they come. Uh, He had three main points. First, submit to the affliction. In other words, don't be angry at God. Don't don't be angry at Him because He brought that trial in your life. Be willing to bear the trial as long as God would have you do so. Second, He urged His hearers to inquire into God's meaning for the trial. In other words, He argued that when these afflictions come, we should go to God in prayer and we should ask, God, what are you teaching me through this? What are you exposing in my own heart? What are you showing me about myself in this? Is there some idol in my life that I need to smash up? Is there some hidden lust? Is there some forbidden practice, some unholy love in my life that you're shining light on and I need it to shrivel up and die? And then finally, Machine urged his hearers to forsake any and all sin that is revealed. He says, let our afflictions make us holy now, that we may be happy in the life to come. When we don't learn the lesson and we don't repent, what's a good father going to do? Is he going to take that trial away? No. If he does, he may bring yet another and another until we learn that lesson because he's training us, he's preparing us for heaven. So God doesn't just give us afflictions. He gives us promises with the afflictions. He gives us humility with the afflictions. He gives us self-knowledge with the afflictions. And he gives us the opportunity to repent and grow in Christ's likeness. We should be like children who can't wait to grow up in Jesus Christ. And trials help us do that. Okay, number four. Fourth means of comfort from God. Remember your Savior's afflictions and the glory that came after. Remember your Savior's afflictions and the glory that came after. So as you go through your life, you can find comfort by fixing your eyes on your leader. You are not the first to walk through a life of affliction. Christ, your great shepherd, has gone this way 
first. Remember his trials. Remember his sufferings. Likely, Jesus experienced the death of his earthly father, Joseph. His own siblings called him insane. At his death, he had to commit the care of his mother to another man. His disciples were his dearest friends, and yet they forsook him. One of them even betraying him with a kiss. We think about the the mockery that he endured. We think about the physical suffering and the emotional anguish of Gethsemane and the cross. And of course, nothing can compare with the kind of hurt and horror that Jesus experienced as he endured the wrath of God for sinners. The fact is, Jesus Christ suffered more than you or I ever will. And yet after he endured the suffering, still blessing his Father, God exalted him and glorified him. The call of Christ is a call for us to follow in his footsteps. Like Jesus, we are to trust God and we are to walk in his ways. And like Jesus, we are to endure suffering in this life, holding fast to God and his word. Like Jesus, after we have persevered through the furnace of our afflictions, we will find that God glorifies us. 1 Peter 2.21 For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to follow him down the road of trusting God in the midst of the trials and obstacles and hardship that God has appointed for you. John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Or 1 Peter 5.10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's a glorious promise. Hear it again. After you have suffered a little while, after you have gone through your cross-carrying life, The God of all grace who has called you to eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That day of glory is coming for us. Romans 8.18 I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In Revelation 21.4 He will wipe away every tear from their eyes And death shall be no more. And there shall be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. We follow Jesus through a life of suffering, through whatever trials God has appointed for us, knowing that the day of glory is ahead. My favorite Puritan illustration of this is the fact that Christ is the head and we are his body. And they used to talk about Jesus making his way through a hedge. And Jesus, as the head, has already made it through the thorny hedge. He's already into the clearing. He was pierced by the thorns. He endured the pain. But he's now come into the clearing. And we, as his body, are now following behind through the hedge. And, And soon, very soon, we too will have made it through. And we will come into the clearing of of heaven itself. 
Well, finally, let me add this fifth comfort. Fifth comfort. I know that many of us have the affliction of fearing and grieving for lost loved ones. Uh, We have spouses or children or others who are dear to us who seem not to truly love Jesus from the heart. So what is our last comfort? Simply this. Remember that as long as there is breath in those we love, there is reason for hope. As long as there is breath in those we love, there is reason for hope. Spurgeon, talking about our kids, said, Never must we cease to pray until they cease to breathe. We have no guarantee that Christ will save our lost loved ones. But we do know the nature of God. That our God is a God abounding in steadfast love and mercy. He is a God who delights to show mercy. He is a God who is slow to anger. Also, we know that our God is a God who loves to hear and He loves to honor the prayers of His people. And on top of this, He is a God who enters into our griefs. He knows our sorrows. He has promised us that He will give us the desires of our hearts when He is our chief delight. And so as long as our lost loved ones are breathing and Christ is on His throne, there is reason for hope. There is reason to pray and there is reason to run to Christ and to intercede for our lost loved ones. So let me close with one story of answered prayer. Um, I quote John Piper a lot, probably because of the profound impact that his sermons had on me when I was, when I was young. What you might not know is that John Piper had a son who ran away from the faith as a teenager. Uh, in fact, John and Noel Piper's son, Abraham, underwent church discipline, and he was excommunicated from the church when he was 19 years old from his own church with, with John as the pastor. Um, There were no games being played here. Abraham was very straight with his parents. He had already claimed to be a Christian. I believe he had already been baptized. He was obviously a member of the church. But he had come to a point as an older teenager where he decided it was all fake, that he was not a Christian at all. Um, When Piper was asked about this in an interview, John Piper, he said this, The night after that excommunication, I called him at 10 o'clock and said, Abraham... You knew what was coming. And he said, that's what I expected you to do. That has integrity. And I respect you for doing it. And from then on, for the next four years, Abraham was walking away from the Lord, trying to make a name for himself in disco bars as a guitarist and a singer, and doing just about anything that would further destroy himself. We were praying like crazy that he wouldn't get somebody pregnant or marry the wrong person or whatever. But he came back to the Lord four years later, and the church had a beautiful restoration service. He wept his eyes out in front of the church, and he was restored. Piper says this is church discipline at its best. So that was his perspective, but listen to how Abraham tells the story. He says, when I was 19, I decided I'd be honest and stop pretending that I was a Christian. At first, I pretended that my reasoning was high-minded and philosophical, But really, I just wanted to drink gallons of cheap sangria and sleep around. Four years of this, and I was strung out, stupefied, and generally pretty low, especially when I was sober or when I was alone. My parents, John and Noel Piper, who are strong believers and who raised their kids as well as any parents could, 
They were brokenhearted and they were baffled. I'm sure they were wondering why the child they tried to raise right was such a ridiculous screw-up now. But God was in control. One Tuesday morning before 8 o'clock, I went to the library to check my email. I had a message from a girl I'd met a few weeks before, and her email mentioned a verse in Romans. I went down to the Circle K and bought a 40-ounce can of Miller High Life for $1.29. Then I went back to where I was staying. I rolled a few cigarettes. I cracked open my drink, and I started reading Romans 1. I wanted to read the verse from the email, but I couldn't remember what it was, so I started at the beginning of the book. By the time I got to chapter 10, the beer was gone, the ashtray needed emptying, and I was a Christian. I find it amazing and humbling that though Abraham's father was probably one of the most influential preachers of our day, it was not through his dad's preaching or teaching that he came to Christ. It was through a verse mentioned in an email that led him to the Bible itself where he, in the midst of drinking and smoking, came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact is, we never know what the Lord has in store. But we do know that He has a purpose in our afflictions. And that we should recall these things that He has taught us in His Word in order to find comfort. So to summarize, let us remember from whom our afflictions come. Let us remember the goal of our afflictions. Let us remember the gifts that God gives us with our afflictions. Let us remember the afflictions of our Savior and the glory that came afterwards. And fifth, let us remember that as long as there is breath in those we love, we have reason for hope. Amen.